From the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Casey Park is an associate professor of law at Georgetown University. Her scholarship examines the creation of the American real estate system and the historical connections between property law, immigration law, and American Indian law. She teaches a first-year property and a class in a seminar entitled Land, Dispossession, and Displacement. Previously, she was a critical race studies fellow at UCLA School of Law and an equal justice works fellow and staff attorney in El Paso, where she investigated predatory mortgage lending schemes as part of the Texas Rio Grande Legal Aids Foreclosure Defense Team. In 2015, her article, Money, Mortgages, and the Conquest of America, won the American Bars Foundation Graduate Student Paper Competition and the Association for Law, Culture, and Humanities Austin Surratt Award. Her publications have appeared in the Harvard Law Review, The History of the Present, Law and Social Inquiry, Law and Society Review, and the New York Times. Welcome to the New Dawn Podcast, Casey. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Michael, I'm so glad we're finally doing this. Yes, I mean, we, as you know, we were supposed to do this much earlier, but, you know, our communities <laughs> and our families, and I, at least in my, my case, individually, we've gone through a lot, of, a lot of trauma, and we needed time to reflect. Yeah, we're on pandemic time when anything can happen. So I thought that format should change it from the sort of standard New Dawn format in the sense that we're certainly going to talk about your work and that's where we're going to start. But I don't see how we also don't talk, have a very long conversation about the politics we're carrying today and where do we go from here, if, if that sounds reasonable both to you. I think that makes a lot of sense. And frankly, the two are related. You know, we both work on race and capitalism. And right now there's... <laughs> People are really talking about race and capitalism, which I think we both know is unusual in our careers. People, well, not in political science. Well, I mean, except for the usual suspects, political science still manages to avoid these subjects. But it is a time where we think starting with Occupy or even before that, you know, the term economic inequality is coming back into public discourse, systemic racism and the relationships between a lot of these different types of oppression, both historical and contemporary, and the links between the two. And one of the key features of your work is to show that not only the violence of race and capitalism is at the foundation of our society, but the very systems and instruments of financial capitalism have the origins in the colonial era, processes of possession, racialization, dispossession, and displacement genocide and enslavement. A key point that I thought I was going to ask you to start with is how do these processes of differences relate to the financial situation of the earlier early settler colonists in North America? And what was the relationship between the dispossession and the taxation of people and their land on one hand and the enslavement of black bodies on the other? Thanks for that question, Michael. It's so important, and it really goes right to the heart of the things I'm thinking about now. So, you know, I teach a little bit of this material as well as writing about it. 
And one thing my students see right away is that the structure of financing for the colonizing project altogether was one that began today. The first companies to launch these enterprises, they had royal charters, but they were formed as joint stock companies and they really found a whole lot of investors to put money into the project of going overseas and engaging in racial violence to produce profits. And the structure of debt was set ex ante by this. Colonists came to the so-called new world, was pressured to make good on those debts and produce profits to pay them back. And so they were highly innovative in the ways they sought to do this. And one tool that they really had at their disposal was racial violence, the license to be quite creative with it, to use tactics, techniques, strategies that were not allowed in Europe for use against other European people. Under the Discovery Doctrine, there was a sort of carte blanche to European countries to go over and use whatever forms of violence they saw fit. And that looked very different for the English than for the Spanish than for the Portuguese and for the Dutch. But the violence and the racial division between European, non-European, Christian, non-Christian, that was all in common. So that's kind of a lengthy answer to the first part of your question. How did what evolved relate to the financial structure of the early colonial period? I think it was set by that structure of debt slash racial hierarchy as the mandate that really began all these enterprises. And to your second question, what I look at is how in the 17th century and leading into the 18th, but really primarily in the 17th century, you know, colonists were really looking around for what kinds of enterprises would be profitable. And so, you know, there was the fur trade. There was a tremendous stripping of the forest and sending back lumber building and so on and so forth. But over the course of the 17th century, and this is what I'm really interested in, land moved to the center of the commodity market. Land became increasingly important as a commodity itself. And it's really the infrastructure that was put together to produce land as a commodity and facilitate its sale, which required, as you know, my work has pointed out in the past, required dispossession and required developing violent techniques of dispossession in the first place. In that process of accumulating land in both the New England colonies, the Middle Atlantic, and certainly in the South, um, the slave trade, which is as is now popularized by the New York Times project, began on this and in the 13 colonies in 1619, um, really expanded to support that territorial expansion. And one of the things I'm looking at right now is how laws changed and really experimented with making different kinds of commodities, namely land, liable or not liable for the non-payment of debts. Primarily, it was experimented in making land and enslaved people liable or not liable for the non-payment of debts in order to best manage the constant need for credit that colonists had and also the demand of creditors to be paid. So these two markets in land and people really expanded together, were interdependent, and the same kinds of legal experiments were happening in order to make sure that the market, based on those two all-important commodities, continued to grow. One of the surprising 
phenomena that, that you discuss in detail that you could talk about the sort of whitewashing of financial instruments, which we've seen, you know, Marx and others have talked about that, but you were, you're quite specific and talk about how financial instruments that we consider to be quite normal and neutral today, such as the mortgage and foreclosure, were in fact not neutral and used in, in a ways in the colonies. Can you say a bit more? Yeah, of course. In my first answer, I already talked about how much innovation was happening in the colonies, innovation with using different kinds of strategies and techniques to make money than would be used in England between English people or in France between French people. And the point is really quite simple, that when you have a population that is being ideologically dehumanized, where the overarching mandate gives license to use forms of violence against them that the main kind of constituency, civil society, colonists, people in England will not object to that form of violence, you're going to get new forms. So the English really used legal and financial techniques to make money in addition to outright war and violence. They just didn't have the means to support a continuous warfare, open warfare. And so they engaged in a lot of legal and financial techniques that became a channel for the sort of racial violence that they were authorized to use. They were very innovative with that, as I said. And so they developed tools that were familiar to them from England and adapted them for use against first native populations in the case of foreclosure, which, as you mentioned, I've written about a lot. They adapted it for use against native populations in ways that trespassed upon boundaries that had previously been set by law to respect certain integral parts of human experience and community in an attempt to preserve social order, you know, the ability of families to live over generations. So to be more concrete, it had not been easy to foreclose upon a family's land. Mortgages are ancient instruments. They have been around since biblical times, at least. And People have always been troubled by the ability to kind of appropriate land, a family's land, recognizing that it's so important to have a stable home base. It's always been objectionable foreclosure as an instrument. And you know, what people don't realize is that until the colonization of America, no one ever imagined that you could just take the land away for non-payment of a debt, just kick the family off no concern as to where they will go or how they will survive. This was an entirely new innovation. It was something that colonists came up with in order to seize land in the very early colonial period in the 17th century. I think this is really pretty astounding and an example of how what colonists were willing to do you know, proved so fruitful in terms of becoming a way not only to accumulate land, but also to receive more credit. When you put land up as a security, creditors are more willing to lend because then they know that they'll have that security to seize in the event of non-payment. So the credit, it made the credit flow, this kind of innovation. And over the course of the 17th century, colonists really, really came to understand the kind of catalyzing force of this new instrument. And having normalized it through its regular use against Native peoples, it became almost irresistible to use it 
against other colonists as well. Beginning with the poorest, most least connected among them, they began to also seize other colonists' land for non-payment of debts. And eventually, this ability to foreclose easily for non-payment of debts became law in the colonies, first colony by colony, and then eventually, according to parliamentary law, across all of the British Empire. To me, this is an example of how experiments that are violent against human life in ways that were not possible to contemplate against your own kind, but used on racial others, became normalized and eventually absorbed into status quo financial practice in a way that has come to affect everyone. This was the first incorporation of this kind of trade practice, you know, the use of land as security, which, as you know, over centuries has only become more and more routine. And if you like, we can talk about the developments over those centuries that came to make it such a staple feature of daily life now. But it is fair to say that our real estate market, as we know it today, could not function without the availability of simple routine, easy foreclosure for non-payment of your mortgage. It took an evolution to make it the case that mortgages were, became the common way that Americans purchased property, purchased their homes. Of course, that was in the 1930s through the FHA's innovations. That was really the first time that Americans began to access home ownership on a really broad scale through the mortgage. But that market could not exist without the promise of foreclosure at the end of it. After three months, generally now in practice, if you have failed to pay your mortgage, they can begin the foreclosure proceeding. And then depending on what your state you're in, it can be over in as short a time as two months. And you're out on the street, you've lost your home with nothing to show for it. So it's a long story, and I'm trying to tell the beginning of it because I think that people really don't realize just how unprecedented the kinds of experiments colonists engaged in at the beginning of the 17th century were, that by the beginning of the 18th century became already a common and accepted practice across all of the colonies to make that colonial economy grow. One of the critical items, I think, that your work highlights and work of of others as well is the centrality of the, of the state in building this connection between racial oppression on one hand and this exploitation expropriation on the other. It goes back as early, according to some recent scholarship out of UCLA, for example, to the early to the mid fifteenth century with the peace sovereign legitimizing, it was in, literally in person, the racialization of African slaves versus, let's say, poor, poor Europeans on one hand. And of course, obviously, we can talk about this about in the 1930s, the FHA, the HOLC, all the way up to today. But, but one of the points, one of the points that I found surprising was the degree the state in, in England not only made it very clear that, for example, settlers were, if they wanted their 50 acres, they're going to have to build up a Houghton's to get it, but also the degree to which it was used as a safety valve for getting the English poor out of England into the colonies. Yeah, absolutely. As you probably know, there were all kinds of conversations about how to get English people on that land to occupy 
it as against the native claim. So there were lots of conversations, not only about how to get the English poor there, but the English imprisoned, the English quote unquote undesirables, religious minorities. There was a period in Georgia where they were giving land away in the most dangerous parts of the settlement at the outskirts to Jewish people. So there were all of these invitations. You're right that the colonies became a place of absorption for people that England itself just did not know what to do with in the home country. One of the, I think, justified criticisms of the literature on racial capitalism and racial capitalism has been really strong focus on the U.S., in particular the Western Hemisphere, English-speaking colonies and states. What has your research shown some of the key differences and similarities, as, as you point out, between the Dutch, the English, the Portuguese, and the Spanish, and for that matter, the French colonial experiences in the Western Hemisphere? It's a great question. I'm not a comparative scholar, and so I can't really speak to every dimension of it. As you know, I am obsessed with the land market, and I am especially obsessed with the transformations that brought us to where we are today. One thing I found really notable was that even though the Dutch were very famous for having a very highly developed financial empire during this early period, the English were quite unique in the way that they used the mortgage to create this easy form of foreclosure that I was talking about before. And famously, the Spanish, they were highly bureaucratic, but they were less legally innovative in terms of designing systems that have come not only to stick in the country that they colonized, but also to become so world influential. So this is kind of dodging your question because I simply don't have a great answer to it. But one of the reasons, while I completely accept the critique and really value the scholarship that is going on on other empires, trying to help people understand how the focus of empire and colonization and the development of racial capitalism has been elsewhere. I think that's a completely fair critique. It just so happens that my research is focused on the U.S. and it is focused on the U.S. because this particular form of creating enclosures out of land, the cadastral survey, these kinds of numerical coordinates that map out the land, but more importantly, the form of foreclosure that makes them fungible and liquid in an economy that is really leveraging debt in order to produce profits and commodities eventually out of the debt itself. That describes the structure of our real estate market today. And people who have advocated for the adoption of this form of real estate market in other countries. Hernando de Soto, for example, worked with the World Bank. There are still many projects to widen the reach of land titling programs in many other countries as a result of his and others' work. There are cadastral surveys being undertaken right now in Mexico and many other countries that are still affecting indigenous people and displacing them in order to convert their lands into these private enclosures to get integrated onto this global speculative real estate market. De Soto and others have all acknowledged that that system really began as an innovation an American innovation. He says the United States, but as I'm trying to show, it predates the United States. It really began in the colonial period. The basic elements of the land system that is really taking over the world has its origins in the colonization of America. And so that's why I focus, that's why I focus on the US. It has to do with that particular system being my focal point of concern. But I really welcome conversations with people doing work elsewhere. 
in a comparative way to think about other kinds of land systems we might imagine, especially. I'm totally on board. As you know, my work is 90%, 85% focused on the U.S. as well for three reasons, focusing originally on the key aspects of African-American oppression in the U.S. and what it's meant for various systems of domination and, and struggle for liberation. One of the disturbing aspects of the last couple of years has been seeing this flowering of scholarship in history, in legal studies, in the social sciences, in the humanities, in many of the uh, professions of trying to trace um, the relationship between systems of domination, the groundings for systemic racism, the ravages of out-of-control capitalism. It's a pushback by not just, but certainly centrally the U.S. state to try to ban this scholarship from even existing, whether it's critical race theory or anti-race studies, trying to ban terms like white supremacy. Yeah. What has that looked like in legal studies at various universities? I can talk a little bit about um, after you respond to how it looks in places like Chicago, but what does that look like in the domains that you inhabit? So that's a good question. I mean, of course, all of what you say is punctuated by the recent presidential order forbidding, you know, essentially the study of race and gender, the use of terms like white privilege. And I think the impact that that statement in particular, the federal government's explicit intervention to try to denounce the kind of work that we and other scholars have been engaged in, I think the effects of that remain to be seen. I mean, African American Policy Forum just put out a call for people's experiences to try to get a better sense of what universities have been doing and how they've been responding. So I think we have yet to see. I have perhaps been fortunate in that I haven't really felt the effects. I haven't felt really constrained in any way in terms of the research that I'm doing. If anything, I think this order and the general attack on the 1619 Project, you know, another focal point of this much broader conversation about the nation's history and what the truth is and, you know, all the confusion generated by the fact that the version of the truth that we are trying to excavate looks so different than the kinds of narratives that people have grown up learning. You know, that generates a lot of confusion. And I think controversies like the 1619 Project or the presidential order really just highlight those conversations and make a whole lot of people understand how important they are. I mean, the public is really going through it right now, trying to trying to work out what they think about all this. And it's not surprising that we're seeing every kind of reaction the powerful denunciation by a white supremacist government to try to suppress this history and denounce it in particular, I think, tells us exactly what its importance and its power is to reshape the kind of status quo understandings of where we are and how we got here. I agree. I, I do think that um, there's a couple other ways it's also affecting, at least at, at places like Princeton, the University of Chicago. One that I found spectacular was the attack of the education department on Princeton for acknowledging that they had a history of systemic racism embedded within the institution and using that as mission and that self-reflection as a 
a platform to then attack Princeton, literally threaten their whatever federal money say, say, that they receive. Another way I've seen it, seen it locally is that, and this is, of course, part of a national trend, um, there's been a department that has do that graduate studies at, and that department should be centered around black studies. And there, there's been a very powerful pushback which has considered that, which has taken a form at the high level administration that this is probably an unwise decision, but it may even be one that is against the principles of the university because potentially by saying that one is committed to black studies is a political statement, not an intellectual statement. And the idea that one who wants to study indigenous studies, wants to study the history of, of African people throughout the world, who wants to study the role of conquest in the southwest of the U.S. and throughout the hemisphere is apical and therefore not objective, seems extraordinarily venomous and deeply problematic. There's no doubt. I mean, it is deeply problematic and it sounds incredibly venomous, as is so much of the response to the surfacing of these histories that we've seen in the social media sphere, you know, and the response from institutions and relating and all the way up to the federal government, relating back to your last question about the role of governments, this is centuries old, right? Government's involvement in the shaping of of ideology, of the story of the nation, the story of what is happening, the story of politics. And for that very reason, I think there is already so much work in the social sciences, humanities, and beyond the sciences as well, that shows that the a distinction between the political versus intellectual is really quite specious. These institutions were built in order to justify courses of history, huge political projects. There is no doubt looking back at American historiography as well as many other kinds of historiography that intellectualism has been mobilized in service of political projects always. And so there is no way to escape the political question of what is the world that we want to see. That is what I understand people to be engaging in when they are presenting these alternative histories that have for so long been buried and for so long been kept from being allowed to disrupt prominent narratives about the United States and complacency with the kind of racial hierarchies that have for so long been the status quo. And so it has always been a political and intellectual project. Now it is more plainly out in the open. And so, of course, one of the tactics of that separation has been precisely that distinction. So that intellectual distinction in order to subordinate one of those projects to the other. So I think it's not surprising that we're seeing the pushback at all. There are enormous stakes and really the floodgates have opened and people are attempting to learn about histories that they realize that we have still so much to learn about. Now, we are just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding. We understand that these histories have had an enormous, the histories I'm saying, I'm speaking of the histories of conquest and slavery have had such a huge shaping role in our country. And yet there is still a lot of confusion about exactly how. And there's so much tremendous work to learn from in trying to answer that question. But there's also a lot of work that is ongoing and to be done to explain why this is not just another way of putting that distinction or a separate distinction, I might say, besides 
political versus intellectual, is also ethical versus practical. And something I hear quite often is people saying, well, I understand the ethical obligation here to acknowledge these histories, but I don't understand their practical import. And one of the things that I really strive to do in my work is to show again how those two things cannot be divorced. Those two things are not separate. The ethical imperative to recognize these histories and where people have come from in ways that, you know, groups that whose history has never been acknowledged fully in this country, including their contributions to creating the world we live in today, but also the ways that their subordination and their suffering has helped the institutions that have caused that are the institutions in many ways that we still have operating now. It's that very detailed kind of wonky history of how these institutions both used racial violence to produce goods and also drew upon existing racism or evolved racism in order to produce the goods that we think about as being the main goods in society. You know, for me, beginning with the land enclosure, including the enclosure of people, their capture, their treatment as commodities on the market, these are examples of goods that were made using racism, using racial violence, whose value drew upon the purchase of preserving and developing and further existing racial hierarchy as well. And I think for people to understand that the market grew in a way that was so dependent on this form of racial violence, that's a very particular story that people have yet to understand. I also have yet to fully understand it. I research it and attempt to better understand these evolutions at a particular time in history. And I know so many other of my peers are engaged in this work at other periods in history. And hopefully together, we're getting closer to having some sense of exactly how this economy evolved. But this is a new story for the nation. So it is simply not surprising to me at all that we're seeing the kind of pushback that we are. One of the things that we're told in the social sciences is that we're supposed to be objective and our research is supposed to be, as one of my, at the time, senior colleagues told me, divorced from the real world. And that's true unless you're an economist and, and trying to help the government of Chile establish an authoritarian regime. That's just an objective policy there. One of the points you made at the end of what you just said is that it is obviously a political and illogical project, but it's also a project of accumulation. It's an economic project as well. It's not that the state is, and it is. It's like if you look at, for example, going back to the Homeowners Loan Corporation in the 1930s, to use one of your examples of talk about the real estate market, it's, it's an establishment of rigid racial hierarchies in urban land practices and loan practices did establish a system of white privilege, or for that matter, a system of religious privilege as well. But white privilege predominantly, it also established a lot of that. It established, it led to both various homeowners and property companies, uh, real estate agents, reaping a windfall because of the establishment of the hierarchies in, in real estate practices. I mean, sometimes you forget that this is not just an illogical practice. This is a, this is a as you, your work shows from the beginning, going back to the 15th century in, in Portugal, a process by which both the state and rich individuals within states reap windfall amounts of, of profits due to appropriation and racial subordination. Absolutely, Michael. I think one of the really, perhaps one of the most important things that we understand coming out of the histories that I understand 
looking at the histories that I do, is that the peculiarity of the American form of government is really a very intense collaboration between the public and the private sphere. There is a very high degree of coordination and quite a lot of delegation to private entities, which again, you see from the earliest financial structure of the colonial enterprise, a royal charter, but private financing, placing an onus to private lenders and investors on the individuals who come out to seek fortune, to establish settlements, to sort of strip these lands that they arrive in of their resources, all kinds of resources, including their people, and then ultimately of their land altogether, in order to benefit first the mother country and then to establish their own governments, which eventually, you know, for which they establish independence as well. So there is a really high degree of public-private coordination going all the way back. The example of the FHA and Hulk is another such you know, centuries later, incredibly intense example of that. That is the government, rather than as many other countries in the world at the same time were doing, actually building and running public housing to meet the vast housing shortage, the housing needs of the people, farming it out to banks instead, agreeing to insure their loans, the loans of private entities, thereby spurring the creation of loans, which is really the creation of money in circulation, the creation of value, they're really farming out value creation, money creation to banks in this huge structural way that is not only a massive delegation to the private sphere, but also comes with the explicit charge. Um, They are ensuring this property formation, this money creation, because the form of property creation that they're betting on is a form of racial segregation. This isn't just for any kind of loan, and this isn't just for any kind of future property. This isn't just for houses, neutral houses in the abstract. This is for the creation of segregated suburbs under guidelines that explicitly devalue any property enterprise where the inhabitants of the property will be diverse within a neighborhood. The presence of one person of color, minority, black person, immigrant on a block is enough to downgrade the valuation under the FHA appraisal guidelines and therefore make it less insurable, more of a risk to insure. And so you have the federal government really stepping in to give this delegation to the private sphere to spur the formation of massive amounts of property worth enormous sums of value that specifically draws on the value of racial exclusion and segregation, knowing that there has long been a market cultivated that will that will grow and revitalize the American economy at this time when it is in a Great Depression. And that public-private coordination, which is so central, as you just described, applies equally to the creation and support and protection of racial violence. So whether it's as growing up as a young Black person on the south side of Chicago, that if you go to a certain beach, you're going to be t- attacked by white mobs, with the, and if you could also be attacked by the police at the same time, or whether it's some settler colonialism in North America or elsewhere, knowing that part of your job as settling on these lands is that your family must be prepared to kill indigenous peoples. The nation of state and private violence aimed at whether it's indigenous peoples, Latinx populations, black people, is 
central to this process of accumulation and value that just described. Absolutely. You know, as Wendy Warren writes in her terrific book, New England Bound, they sent people over with guns. They were armed. They knew what kind of a project they were heading into. The earliest settlements were all armed forts. They were set up as garrisons. The early settlements and then certainly the early republic, there was a very particular coordination between the kind of private violence that was expected of people, you know, hence the Second Amendment, expected of private individuals to protect their own property. There was a coordination between them and public violence or public law enforcement, depending on the capacities of the army, which was very small and did not have much capacity after the revolution, but grew in power and really by the time of the Civil War really had grown into this huge bureaucratic force. That kind of coordination between private and public violence, I think there is a story to be told. Certainly, there are fantastic scholars telling part of this story. But going all the way back to the beginning, that coordination of private and public violence is a story that I think Stuart Schrader and other are telling and others are telling about the coordination between private militias and public law enforcement now and the police. And so we should not be surprised at all in the police's acquiescence to certain kinds of private violence and not others. It fits the pattern that goes all the way back to really the beginning of settlement. And I'm, this is not to say that it's the same, but it has evolved over time. And that particular feature is one of its most prominent strands that's developed in a very particular way since the beginning. And that's one of the reasons that day on day like today, we don't celebrate Columbus Day. We, so we, we recognize and honor Indigenous Peoples Day. One of the linking, I'm just talking about, about linear, literally in terms of respect to time, the one reasons that the South lost the Civil War was because throughout the history of slavery in the United States, white citizens were expected to protect the privileges of white slave owners. And what that meant was having a standing, they didn't call them militia slave patrols, other types of forms of violence to ensure that slavery remained intact as a probable economic system for white Southern elites. That constant threat of rebellion and escape was a constant drain on the manpower of the plantation south. Mm -hmm. the, where we can move toward concluding our conversation is, what are some of the key lessons that your work and the, and the work of people that you're in conversation with have for today and the situation we find ourselves in? You know, Michael, for me, always looking at these histories is a way of trying to better understand the institutions that we have now. And the truth is that centuries of a highly political suppression of these histories has led to a situation where the dominant conversations that have formed about law and policy, about political horizons and poss possibility, are ignoring many working characteristics of our institutions. There's a lot of narratives about how they work and what they do, you know, how really the kind of baseline frameworks for how we understand our institutions that are so widespread and accepted that look very different if you look at these 
histories, things like the separation of the public and private sphere. There are many ways to attack that distinction, but I think that the history that we have just talked about, you know, together for the last 40 minutes or so, really highlights a kind of coordination that tells us more about how it works. How have laws incentivized peoples to do, to undertake certain kinds of actions and not others? In what ways has the government, you know, going back to your question about the government role, really chosen to endorse certain kinds of property making and not others, certain kinds of values, collective values, and not others? How has it deployed law enforcement and how not? And what is the relationship between public and private forms of violence. All those things look different. If you look back at the history of colonization, if you look back at the history of the first and the second reconstruction, they look very different with those histories at their center, as opposed to marginalized and add on something that people can take as an elective. And I have a lot of concern, you know, we are going through this period of huge turmoil. And for good reason, people want to dismantle a lot of things. But we're also going to have to build something else in the future. And I am really concerned about the potential to reproduce certain structures that everyone is accustomed to and takes for granted as being good. Land enclosures, for example, this form of providing shelter and the market. Without knowing these histories, there's no way to really see how the kinds of values that have been embraced through the histories of colonialism and slavery are really embedded in and integrated into our very market structure itself. And so this is really an attempt to provide enough information that people can have a more holistic critique and imagine other possibilities than the ones we have now. Many people are doing this work, so I'm just trying to join in that chorus, you know, by doing this work to give a clearer, better way to analyze the institutions that we have now, based on history that very few people have ever brought to bear on thinking about how these institutions work in the present. And one of the, I think that I work from, I started work from the institutional side, or from the behavior of people in resistance side. And one of the things I think we do learn from the histories of people, what the type of work you do as I've been doing is that today we're all told that people work on the environment crisis, the indigenous struggles and the struggles of the say African-Americans, you pick three non-random examples, are in conflict with each other. But these histories show us how from the very beginning there was an environmental disaster due to the plantation system and the colonization of, of of the Western Hemisphere and other parts of the world, how the, as you point out in your, in your work constantly, the displacement of indigenous and enslavement of people of African descent went hand in hand. They weren't set processes. And at the same time, I, one of the myths we're always told is that people protesting in support of Black lives at Black Matter, they're a small minority. But one of the lessons Malcolm X tried to teach people and many, many others was that, no, you're part of a global majority of people who are trying to throw off the system of global system of oppression, as you point out, that's been around for hundreds of years. So one of the one of the key points, I think, is you're not alone, and these struggles are linked, and every generation's duty is trying to figure out how to, to best move them forward. I think you're right, and I think that people are really developing that very idea that you speak of now. It's not an accident that the movement for environmental justice is now being led by Black and Indigenous youth. You know, one thing that I would add to the last point I made when you asked me about the value of this work that I think is very resonant with 
the value of your work and I think why we enjoy having a conversation. You know, the study of race and the study of the histories that I work on of conquest and slavery in particular are criticized by people who don't know much about them for being very sectarian, for being obsessed with minoritarian interests. And just the opposite, actually, you know, just the opposite of that is true. I think what you're pointing to is the leadership of Black and Indigenous youth in imagining a sustainable and equitable future for everyone. The kinds of visioning that I see coming out of these movements and that I believe to be the lodestar for this kind of scholarship, for this kind of work in all of its different dimensions on the ground with people, you know, in research and writing, in movement building, really is a future of a planet that survives and human existence that can move beyond the violent legacy of these histories and build something different that works for everybody. And so it's an incredibly generous, generative, expansive vision that I think is what is ultimately offered by this kind of work. And I I think, you know, it's really important for people to understand that. It's the greatest critics do not understand this in the least, but I really cannot emphasize enough that I really believe that this is the bottom line. I, I totally agree. A key question that's on the table is what type of world do we want to live in? How do we get there? Mm-hmm. And that takes a very sober confrontation with the world we live in now. There is so much important visioning happening, and I look to many other leaders on that. And all I hope to provide is, you know, some clear analysis of where we've come from and what we have now in order that we might look at it and decide what, if anything, is worth keeping and what it is that we need to redo and remake in order for a different future. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's so great to talk to you, Michael, as always. This is your host, Michael Dawson. Stay tuned for a series of exciting podcasts in early January with Brandy Summers. We talk about race, neoliberalism, capitalism, and black urban spaces. And in the first for New Dawn, I'll be speaking with Alan Linton on sports, race, and capitalism. And we have lined up a number of additional outstanding guests. Please check your sources and we will be back in the first of the year with a number of outstanding podcasts.